What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Welcome to Belaboring the Point. I'm your host, Kate Riga. Today, TPM's own Josh Kavinsky and I chatted with Serhi Plohi, who is a professor at Harvard. He has a new book out, and we chatted with him about kind of the state of the Russian-Ukrainian war and how you know, really where goes Ukraine goes democracy at this point. You know, that it's a there's much more at risk than just kind of the future of this one country, um, especially as we're seeing waning support in the United States, mostly emanating from, you know, the hard right flank of the Republican Party. So, Josh, what did you kind of glean from the conversation? What did you find interesting? I think, Sarah, he did a really good job of taking his deep knowledge of, you know, Ukrainian history and also just kind of like the history, I think, of ideology in the West and translating that into where the conflict is now and where it's the different paths it might take in the future. So that's like a really broad way of, you know, I think describing one point he made, which was saying that like, there was this one moment where he was talking about these like huge kind of industrial wars that have taken place or that like throughout history, you know, we have like all of these countries Maybe not even ones that are you know directly fighting each other, but these countries that are you know producing huge amounts of weapons, and they're all just going to these front lines, and all these it's horrific, right? All these people die, but they also leave, as he said, these really deep marks on the kind of trajectory of the world. Uh, and that was sort of how he ended up framing the Russia-Ukraine war. Was that you know there's a there's a kind of broader question here. It's not just you know the issue of Ukrainian sovereignty, but there is this broader issue of you know whether a big autocracy can go and kind of quash its smaller neighboring democracy. And so I thought he did a good job of kind of framing, I don't really want to say the stakes. I mean, they are the stakes, but I think, I think he did a good job of describing just, you know, the kind of deeper meaning, I think, of what's going on. Yeah, I was really interested, um, you know, because he's like a historian. So he connected a lot of this to the past. And it was so interesting to hear, especially when we were asking about when kind of Russia and Ukraine split in terms of their, you know, how they were going to govern themselves. Um, and, and Ukraine obviously, you know, went towards democracy. It, it was interesting to hear how in that sequence of events, um, you know, the, the 2013 kind of invasion of Crimea and everything was kind of built up people's resistance. It seemed that when Putin invaded in 2022, they'd already kind of like seen what it looked like when when you know their choice was taken from them and and kind of shocked Russia in terms of that initial resistance. Yeah, I thought that was really interesting as well. And he he said something I think similar related to that, which was like then you know over the years that came after you know 2013, 2014, but before 2022, you know the parts of Ukraine that weren't were not, you know, annexed or occupied by Russia, people, you know, ended up kind of seeing the government, basically their view of their own government changed from, 
being this sort of like corrupt, almost foreign thing to being like a partner in their lives, right? I mean, it, it, mm-hmm. the democracy sort of progressed, I think, in the way that we think of it, like big capital L liberalism democracy. Right. You know, and so when the Russian troops advanced in 2022, you know, they were, as Sarah, he said, they were surprised to find that people were loyal walking around with Ukrainian flags because they were loyal to their local elected officials. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that was kind of moving. And so, you know, we're having this conversation at, as he described, a real turning point for the war. Um, you know, we're at a place where it's not at all clear that Congress is going to be able to pass Ukrainian aid. It's becoming a much an increasingly less popular cause on the side of Republicans. And as you say, Josh, in 2024, if Trump should win, that likely spells an end to kind of any aid to Ukraine. So, you know, we're really at an inflection point in terms of the West, this kind of moral support of Ukraine starting to disintegrate. Yeah, it was, I thought he drew an interesting contrast between like, how the U.S. political establishment is kind of organized, like how our political system is organized and, you know, whether or not things can get through Congress, yeah. you know, with the majority that the Republicans have, where they could, you know, this, as you have covered extensively, Kate, uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like small, like radical faction in the House GOP can just hold everything else hostage. It's a good reminder that what is like, you know, we so consider business as usual, it's almost baked in. It's like good to have a reminder of like, this is complete minoritarian rule, right? Like there is a majority of bipartisan support for Ukraine still. Yeah. And yeah, exactly. He used that phrase that it's minority rule, right? Mm -hmm. But you do have like, you know, a a deep well of like support in the public and it is still mostly bipartisan, I think. Right. At least to a degree, other issues are not, right? Supporting, you know, supporting Ukraine. And so that, I mean, that's, it's nice to see. It's just like, I don't know. I'm curious what you think. Like, <laughs> like, like, what wins out in that context? In that contest, like these, like views of like the American people, or like you know the willingness of like the House, some people in the House GOP to do procedural radicalism. To kind of. Yeah, I mean, honestly, what concerns me more is where the Senate Republicans are, because you're always going to have a few House Republicans who are just you know kind of born of the Tea Party movement, or or at least that is their moral home, right? And their their project is breaking the legislature. So it's not even as much about Ukraine as it is, you know, I mean, I'm sure they do have some sympathy for the kind of Russian propaganda of like a traditionalist society or whatever, but it their instinctual kind of reaction is always to just obstruct. But in the Senate, you have traditionally had Republicans who are more kind of quote unquote old school, like and even if they've come to the Trump camp, they do tend to have a little more respect for the institution to take themselves a bit more seriously as legislators. And they are right now we're embroiled in this totally ill-fated project to tie the aid to Ukraine as well as Israel and Taiwan to, you know, a border funding deal, which is just, I mean, could you think of a better way to kind of sink this aid than to attach it to immigration legislation, which we haven't done successfully in absolute decades and on which Republicans have only become more hardline. Um, And even though you have Democrats kind of becoming a little more right wing about it, because you can tell they think it's a weakness for them in the upcoming elections, it's still just, I mean, there's there's just never been more of an ill-fated category of legislation than this. And I mean, I mean, do the Republicans actually want to deal on this, do you think? Because I mean, in some sense, like, these images that you see in right wing media all the time of like chaos at the border, I mean, that's like good for them, like electorally, right? Totally. I mean, it, it works either way, right? Because if they get some deal, they'll be able to say, you know, we 
are in the minority and yet we still bully Democrats into taking our ideas and to to kind of help the border. And then when, as is much more likely, the deal inevitably falls apart, they'll get to say we were in there trying to be tough on the border and these bleeding heart liberals just want open borders and everyone to stream into the country. I mean, there are a few areas where I think Republican rhetoric has gotten uglier than on immigration at the southern border. Right. Well, um, I'm excited for people to listen to the podcast. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's an important moment in this. And even though I think we had an initial flurry of kind of Ukrainian coverage, and while that has faded a little bit, I think from most kind of mainstream news outlets. We're just at a really critical inflection point. Um, this is a really good kind of illuminating conversation to catch you up to where the war is, what the stakes are, and kind of what we can be looking to in the last month of this year and next year um, in terms of kind of Ukraine's future. So here's our conversation. We're talking to Serhii Plohi, author of The Russo-Ukrainian War, The Return of History, a book which covers the events which led to Russia's uh, invasion of Ukraine last year, the early course of the war, and the response from the West. Plohi is director of Harvard University's Ukrainian Research Institute and a native of the country, and so he knows the story better than most. He's been writing about Ukrainian history for years as one of the field's leading scholars. Serhii, thank you for joining us. It's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. You recount a moment in the book where after the initial invasion in March 2022, President Biden has what seems like an emotional outburst and says of Vladimir Putin, for God's sakes, this man cannot remain in power. You wrote that at that moment, there was no doubt that the United States was back in Europe to lead its allies in the battle for freedom against an old enemy and that the West as a whole was involved in the struggle. What about the invasion and your Ukraine, in your view, led to that moment of unity? Well, I'm a historian, so the way how I look at things which are happening today or will happen tomorrow is through the prism of history. So for me, this the story of the Russian invasion is a continuation of a number of historical processes. And one of them, the closest and still on the memory of many people around the world, is the disintegration of the Soviet Union, which came as a result of the end in the Cold, of the Cold War. So the Soviet Union fell apart in December of 1991, one week after Ukrainians voted for their independence at the referendum for independence. 92% voted for their country to go free. And uh, uh, neither Gorbachev at that time, nor Boris Yeltsin, who was leader of Russia, really believed that the Soviet Union could continue or that it made any sense to continue with the Soviet experiment without Ukraine, because Ukraine uh, uh, was the second largest Soviet republic in terms of the population, in terms of the economic potential in the Soviet Union. It also happened to be the Slavic and East Christian Republic in terms of its uh, cultural tradition. And uh, President Yeltsin more than once told President George H.W. Bush uh, that um, Russia wasn't interested in the Union without Ukraine because it would be outvoted and outnumbered by the Muslim republics, keeping in mind, having in mind at that time Central Asia. So Ukraine played a very important role in the disintegration of the Soviet Union. And um, in the last 30 years, any attempt of Moscow to reinstate control over the post-Soviet space really depended on the position of Ukraine. So this is one of the reasons why 
why the war and the war of this enormous proportions, the largest war in Europe since World War II, is taking place on the territory of Ukraine and features Russia, the former imperial master, against against Ukraine that struggles for its independence. And uh, uh, there is there is a number of reasons why the United States is in this struggle on the side of of Ukraine. One of the reasons is, of course, the long history. Again, I'm going back to history. The long history of the United States, which came into existence in revolt against empires, which was uh, in opposition to the traditional European empires uh, through the 18th, 19th century and 20th century as well. There is also a different, a different dimension to the American um, role in this, in, in this war and in this conflict. And this is the fact that um, the United States was trying to keep the Soviet Union intact until really the last months of the USSR. Uh, Bush had wonderful relations with uh, Gorbachev at that time. Uh, the U.S. was very concerned about the uh, nuclear weapons and whether they could the Soviet nuclear weapons where they would end up. So the U.S. was very much interested in the continuation of the Soviet Union as a junior partner on the international arena. But um, once uh, Ukrainians voted for their independence and the writing was on the wall that the Soviet Union was falling apart, the U.S accepted at the face value the issue of independence of the Soviet, of the former Soviet republics, including that of Ukraine, and really opposed the creation of the Russian sphere of influence in Eastern Europe. So independence for Washington meant independence. Independence for Russia meant actually independence conditional on being in Russian sphere of influence. So there is also this, this global global contest that is happening around the, the issue of international order and what the independence of countries really mean in this world. And one thread you draw on throughout the book is the evolution of you know Russian autocracy versus Ukrainian democracy. And how do you think the difference in the two systems of governance kind of impact how the invasion was perceived in the United States? Uh, one thing, again, going back to the events of 91 yeah. and the fall of the Soviet Union, uh, the democracy in the post-Soviet space really associated itself uh, with the person of uh, Boris Yeltsin. He was standing on the tank in front of the Russian parliament, defending the Russian democracy against, against the hardliners who in the Soviet Union. And the expectations were really very high that Russia would become a beacon of democracy in the in the post-communist world and in particular in the post-Soviet world. And that's, that never materialized. So uh, two years later, uh, Boris Yeltsin ordered the tanks to uh, open fire at the very same parliament, at the very same building that he defended in August of 1991. And his explanation was that the uh, parliament was in the hands of the communists and nationalists and hardliners and to save the democracy he had to destroy the parliament. Well, uh, 20, 25 years forward, and you see, of course, uh, Vladimir Putin taking advantage of this so-called super-presidential constitution that Boris Yeltsin introduced after destroying, uh, physically destroying the, 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 the Russian parliament and 
constitutionally really destroying one of the of the in institutional foundations of Russian democracy. No one back in '91 really had very high hopes for Ukraine as a, as a democratic country. Uh, the country was at that time very much in the hands of the very same hardliners who launched the coup. Um, Ukraine was the homeland of two general secretaries of the uh, Soviet Union, Nikita Khrushchev and uh, Leonid Brezhnev. So there was the, 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 the Soviet Union was very much entrenched in Ukraine, maybe more than in any other republic. But again, 20, 25 years forward, what you see is at the same time when the Russian democracy didn't survive the 1990s, didn't survive the authoritarian trend and turn in the Russian politics, the Ukrainian democracy came to the fore defending itself First, in the Orange Revolution of 2004, when the uh, fraudulent elections were rejected by the Ukrainian society, and then in the Revolution of Dignity of 2013, where the attempt was by the government uh, backed by Russia to um, really not allow Ukrainian society to realize its dream to move closer to Europe, to create guarantees against authoritarianism. And we have, we have a very different picture by the year already 2013, 2014, when the war really started. It didn't start in 2022, it started in 2013 with the Russian takeover of the Crimea, of the, it started with the takeover of the buildings of the Ukrainian parliament, surprise, surprise, and then of the Crimean government as well. So by 2013, it was really not just a clash between the two post-Soviet republics. It was a clash between increasingly more and more authoritarian Russia and Ukraine that already proved its, its uh, really its, its uh, uh, desire, its, its resolution, its determination really to stay, to stay democratic. And Ukraine is one of very few post-Soviet republics where democracy survived the 1990s and then the first decades of this century. So, Sergei, I think for this next question, um, I'm sure we could spend days talking about it, but I'm curious if you could just, you know, discuss a little bit. Why did Russia move in the direction, like, what were the conditions that led Russia to move in the direction of autocracy while Ukraine moved towards democracy? I mean, why did one country go one path and the other, and the other country go the other? Um, well, what uh, what um, I see today is, of course, that um, back in early nineties, there was this euphoria about about um, uh, something that was called at that time and later as well as the end of history, and um, the idea was that uh, really the, the end of the Cold War and uh, the fall of the Soviet Union and democratic transformations in Eastern Europe really in, in some way um, heralded the, the, the arrival of liberal democracy as the, uh, not the only form of government in the world, but certainly the form of the government that is superior to any other. And that was, that was the, the foundation for this argument for the end of history. And it was first made looking at Eastern Europe, and we can say that in Eastern Europe, in some way, the democracy, maybe not always liberal democracy, but certainly survived for the last 30 years. But it didn't happen in Russia. 
And the question is why? Why didn't history end in Russia in 1991? And the, 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 the answer to the question about history end really lays in, lies, in my opinion, in the history beginnings and his, uh, beginnings of the Russian history and then continuation of the Russian history through centuries. The country and the society developed as an empire and as an authoritarian uh, empire that uh, almost every empire is authoritarian. And expect that um, history ends today and tomorrow you have a very different society, somehow that history doesn't matter. Now we know for sure it's not, it's not happening in the real world. So um, a, a country that existed uh, under authoritarianism with uh, not just little tradition of democracy, but zero tradition of democracy or democratic institution can't become democratic overnight. It's come, it, it can become democratic in, in, in the longer run, but not, not overnight. This is, this is historical processes that take time. Now, going to Ukraine, why Ukraine eventually, despite this, this being the, 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 the homeland of the Soviet clans and party clans, why Ukraine became, became uh, uh, democratic? One of the explanations for that is that in Ukraine, uh, Ukraine didn't have a history of the imperial existence, or rather had a lot of history of imperial existence, but not as an empire, but as a subject of empire. And more than that, uh, Ukraine existed as part of the Russian Empire, as part of Austria-Hungarian Empire before the revolution of um, uh, 1917 and World War One. And then Ottoman Empire also in the 17th and uh, 16th centuries. So all these empires, they left their imprint, cultural and otherwise, linguistic and so on and so forth, on, uh, on different regions of Ukraine that then came together um, in, the, in, in the processes of the transformation of the 20th century. In 1991, that was the fifth attempt of Ukraine to declare its independence. So when this different regions of Ukraine came together, they realized that no one region was strong enough to suppress every other region. When Germany got united in mid-19th century, there was Prussia, the biggest of all other regions, and it, 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 it created that, that, that unified state. Ukraine didn't have Prussia, we didn't have equivalent of Prussia. So Ukraine became an equivalent of the American colonies uh, in, the, in, the, in the 18th century. What, to survive, you have to stick together, but you also have to come with uh, some form of the modus operandi and, 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 and uh, form of coexistence. And democracy, uh, the worst form of government, except every other form of government, as Churchill <laughs> said, turned out to be the, 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 the template, the, the, the roadmap of how country could stick together and develop. So this, uh, this explanation is from, from history. Of course, probably if you would talk to political scientists, they, they would maybe point to other, to other uh, factors. Uh, but uh, I, 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 I uh, certainly believe in history, and that's, that's, that's how I see it. Uh, different, just different trajectories, historical trajectories of Russia and Ukraine, something that we didn't fully realize back in 1991.
Yeah, and I mean, we're you know we're interested in the historical context here, and I just had one question following up on that, which is. If you look at you know Ukraine's political history since independence in 1991, you've had a number of leaders who have sort of they've had, they've had authoritarian tendencies. They've tried to become you know I think some would say autocrats, but it's never succeeded, right? Ukrainian civil society has pushed back. So what do you think led to that? Um, you had you know was it that the state was too weak? Was it that civil society was strong enough to stop that from taking place? I mean, what do you think the balance was, which led to those efforts at authoritarianism to fail? Um, well, uh, you're absolutely right that a number of uh, Ukrainian leaders were trying to follow in the footsteps of Boris Yeltsin. Um, they they really uh, came uh, came to the age as, as political leaders in the Soviet Union. They looked to Moscow as a model for almost everything, and they tried at least twice to introduce a more authoritarian form of government. Both times this support of Russia. Uh, and what they got were two revolutions, the Orange Revolution uh, 204 and the Revolution of Dignity in uh, uh, 2013. Um, around the Revolution of 204, at that time, President of Ukraine, uh, Leonid Kuchma, wrote a book which was called Ukraine is Not Russia. Basically, uh, basically, apparently developing the argument that he made in private conversation to Vladimir Putin when Putin was uh, actually encouraging him to use force against the demonstrators in Kiev. And uh, Kuchma's argument, uh, and, and uh, to his credit, he understood that, was that the Ukrainian society would never accept that. The, 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 the revolution of dignity in 2013 uh, turned from a very limited protest called Euro Revolution into a really national protest after the police was used to disperse the student manifestation. So that was the red line for the for, for, for Kiev, for the Ukrainian society. Whether they supported Euro integration or not, they certainly rejected the, the, the uh, government that was, uh, was uh, using force against students. So the, the battle cry was, okay, you can't do that to our children. And uh, that's, that's, that's certainly not, not the attitude that we, we had in Russia, including during the uh, 2012 uh, Bolotnaya Square protests, and then later protests led, led by Navalny. Uh, so the, 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 the difference was there. Um, uh, the, there is a number, a number of reasons why the Ukrainian society turned out to be stronger than the Russian one. And one of those reasons is the weakness of the, of the state. The weakness of the state, the, the Ukrainian project survived and uh, emerged victorious in opposition to the state. The state was always imperial. The state was not, was not uh, Ukrainian. So for Ukrainian society, it took a while, not just months or years, decades, to learn to live in the state that is not foreign state state that is yours. And um, from that point of view, the year 2014, the war, the start of the war, became a turning point in which society discovered the state not as an enemy, but as an ally. And the state discovered society as its ally. And uh, that's really the, 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 the uh, joining forces, society and state joining forces, that became a discovery of this new stage of the war of 2022. Because uh, um, uh, Putin's plan, the way how I understand it, 
um, with the so-called uh, military, special military operation was that there would be limited resistance on the part of Ukraine of a sort that happened in, 20, in 2014 when Crimea was taken uh, with, by military force, but with very little resistance. And um, the, 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 the expectation was that the society and the state are basically in opposition to each other. And uh, it came as a surprise not only to the Russians, but probably to many Ukrainians and to the world at large that when the Russians started to take over uh, basically Russian-speaking uh, regions and cities in, in southern Ukraine, like Kherson, Melitopol, Berdyansk, uh, this uh, people were marching with the Ukrainian flags against the Russian tanks in defense of their mayors, people whom they elected and whom they trusted. And one of the arguments on the front lines in Ukraine when they were asking for what they were fighting for, the first thing was, okay, we, we just didn't invite anybody to come here and to tell us mm. how to live. But the second was, was that they were fighting for democracy, for the right to choose. And they knew very well after 2014 that that right was taken away from their compatriots in, in Crimea and in eastern Ukraine. So by 2020, in 2014, they didn't know what they were supposed to fight for and what they were supposed to, to defend. They were taking democracy for granted. They were taking the state that was not interfering into their affairs for, for granted. In 2022, they, they already realized that that was a value that they had to defend. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress-them-on-the-third-date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders, while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Oh, that's so interesting. In the book, you write about how in some sense it's a, you know, it's a 19th century war and about how Putin has adopted a worldview in his public statements, which casts Russia as a, quote, unique multi-ethnic civilization, not only different from the West, but opposed to it in history, culture, and values. And in the West, we've seen statements from Putin that echo a lot of our own you know, right-wing culture war rhetoric, talking about gay marriage and, and cancel culture, things like that. You know, What purpose does that serve and how does that fit into his view of Russia as a unique civilization? Um, Russia goes through a very difficult period of um, uh, really coming to the terms with the uh, uh, loss of the superpower status. I understand that Putin was very offended when uh, Obama uh, apparently called Russia just a regional, a regional power, not, not a superpower. Um, and um, also uh, also the, the loss of empire. So Ukraine, uh, Azerbaijan, Baltic states, Armenia, Kazakhstan, you name it. That's not, that, 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 that's not part of Russian territory anymore. And um, it's, it's in search for the, for the new national idea and in search for new ideology that would be transnational. So the communist is gone. The communism is gone. This communism 
The Soviet Union could very effectively function on the ideological level in faraway places like Latin America, Cuba, Africa, and so on and so forth. And uh, during the interwar period, recruit spies like Kim Philby, who were um, there basically to protect communism. So if you are now Russian nationalist, what, how far can you go in, in Africa, in Latin America, how many how many spies you can um, recruit at Cambridge in UK uh, under, under the banner of the Holy Orthodoxy? Not, not many. But if you, if you think about yourself as a defender of the, of the traditional rights, this is a broader trend. And this is a trend that also allows you to, to present as, as a last last uh, bulwark of, of, of traditional values, a savior of Europe from itself because because Europe Europe goes this this horrible way of gay marriages and so on and so forth. That works in Russia and certainly that's what is Russia exporting. I was in uh, Kiev in uh, uh, 2013 at the start of the Revolution of Dignity and in, in Kiev uh, underground, which is beautiful underground, uh, there were these uh, posters put by the by the previous regime that was working with Russia, and uh, they, they were all about uh, about gay Europa and gay marriages and other things. That was the most uh, the, the, that was the way to scare the Ukrainian society, and that was also the product that Putin Putin was selling in uh, in Ukraine and. Uh, um, it doesn't look there are too many buyers in Ukraine, but there are buyers in other places. Well, and I think we see buyers in the United States. I mean, it's come up in the context of the debate in Congress right now over whether or not the Congress is going to pass another aid um, supplemental to Ukraine. But I'm curious. I mean, you know, you see the sympathy for the traditionalist kind of project, propaganda, whatever you want to call it, that you just described. To what extent is that intentional? And to what extent is that targeted on the part of the Kremlin towards potentially sympathetic voices in the West? Uh, well, um, this is certainly something that uh, that uh, is essential now for the for the uh, really regime in Russia and for legitimization of that regime. And if you can also export that, of course, you do that. But what we see today is that Russia really uh, doesn't function exactly in the way how the Communist Soviet Union functioned which was ideological both at home and abroad. Um, Russia today basically functions as a spoiler state, as a basically the, 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 uh, using whatever ideology available to um, destabilize the democratic systems abroad. So anything that works to destabilize democracy and undermine and discredit democracy is good. From that point of view, the leftist ideas and the leftist groups are not particularly rejected. The, the rightist groups are not rejected and embraced as well. So again, um, in terms of traditional values, there are more, more kind of a synergy between the, the Russian uh, domestic policy and, and uh, foreign policy, uh, formal and informal. But uh, the, the, the uh, leftist ideas are not, are not discarded as the, 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 uh, the, the instrument of foreign policy, as the weapon against, against the West. So from that point of view, um, you know, Russia today 
is is much more um, I, I would say uh, flexible and potentially can be, can be more effective once the the, 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 the communism started to lose uh, it, its appeal and that started already certainly relatively early by the by the 60s 70s for sure both at home and abroad the, the regime lost the regime lost one of its key uh, key foreign policy instruments but uh, if if you have a bigger toolbox certainly you can be you can be more effective and that's that's russia has now a bigger ideological toolbox to achieve its foreign policy goals so in march of 2022 it felt that you know the west was kind of strikingly united in support for ukraine what do you think has changed on that front now um <clears throat> Uh, indeed, there was uh, there, there was quite unique, uh, sub, I would say, condemnation of Russia. The, the uh, President Biden did it, did a very very impressive job of putting together the sanctions coalition. So the last time the U.S. president achieved something like that was uh, the time of the disintegration of the Soviet Union. That was George H.W. Bush. So working with the Allies, uh, uh, that's that's. That was quite uh, quite impressive, but the idea basically was that um, Ukraine would uh, Kiev would fall within a few days, Ukraine would fall in, in a couple of weeks. Um, that was the reason why all the embassies were withdrawn, Western embassies were withdrawn from uh, from uh, Ukraine. So it was a strong condemnation of Russia and moral support for Ukraine. But basically, the idea was that. Uh, not, nothing can be done about that. And the uh, situation changed by April. By April, uh, Ukraine on its own defeated the, the, the uh, um, Russian, uh, Russian uh, attempt to capture Kiev and forced the Russian troops to withdraw. And at that point, the West makes the decision that actually this is uh, the country that showed its ability to fight back. So we should support it not only through sanctions and from the from through condemnation of Russia and expression of moral support and taking refuges, but we can support it also uh, in, in fight for its sovereignty and independence and uh, for, for, uh, as an extension of that also for maintaining the international order. And that story pretty much lasted until the last few months. Ukraine uh, produced now with the Western help a number of additional victories in the counteroffensive near Kharkiv in eastern Ukraine, pushing Russians from Kherson, the, the only major uh, city, the regional capital that Russia captured during uh, that stage of the war. And the expectations were really very high that uh, the counteroffensive that uh, started this summer would produce similar results. The counteroffensive didn't produce those results. The front lines barely moved in this year, year 2023. And now we are at another turning point in this, in this war. The first came in the first days of, of the war when President Zelensky refused to flee, when Ukrainians decided to fight. The next turning point was in April when the West decided to support Ukraine's fight for independence, and now we are in the in, in the moment of soul searching and, and finger pointing as well. 
why the, 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 the expectations of 2022 didn't materialize in 2023 and what to do with that. So uh, my, my understanding is that depending on the decisions that will be made next year, year 2024, those decisions will become uh, crucial for the outcome of the war, of the war in general. Um, so my, uh, my, my uh, look at that as a historian is that, and, and putting this war in the historical context, is that this is the largest war in Europe since 1945. The largest industrial war in, in the world in the last 70 years. The wars like that, they leave a profound mark on the, on the world, on the international relations. On the outcome of this war depends not just this or that territory within Ukraine, and not only continuing existence of Ukraine as an independent state. On this war very much depends what will happen with democracy and autocracy. Um, this is this is not just a cliche. Uh, democracy is under attack not only in, 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 in Russia or in China. It's also under attack in, in the uh, countries with long democratic tradition. But the question is about the, the international order and the example that one or another outcome of the war can really give, for example, China whether it uh, makes sense to, to go after Taiwan, or maybe it's too costly and maybe it's the idea that, that should be, it should be at least postponed. So international order, the future of democracy, and certainly the, 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 the future of Europe. Uh, what will happen with Eastern Europe, it's, uh, history didn't come to an end yet. Uh, Russia continues to look at the Baltic states, which are part of NATO and are part of the European Union, as, as uh, it's not just historical, but also potentially uh, future sphere of influence. Cyber attacks on the Baltic states predated the, the, the start of this war in 2022. So the, what, what I'm trying to say is just because uh, of the scope of the war, its outcome will have a profound impact on the on the world and international order in general. And I think just to point out, I mean, I'm, I know you're a historian, historian, but this really is a question about the future. So we're in a moment now where, uh, you know, as we kind of mentioned earlier, Congress, it's very much up in the air whether or not the American Congress is going to approve further military aid to Ukraine. And if Trump, you know, if there's a second Trump administration after the November elections, it's entirely possible that other forms of support which come from the United States will also come to an end. So what's the risk for Ukraine um, if those two events come to pass, if, you, if American support stops? Well, the risk is uh, pretty much to uh, be left on its own with um, Russia, which um, uh, three times has the population three times what Ukraine has has certainly a, a, quite a factor military-industrial complex despite, despite the uh, sanctions. Um, so the, the, the outcome can be the loss in this war. And again, as, as I explained, it will be more than loss for, for, for Ukraine. And it's also very, very dangerous for the United States because at least my understanding is that there is a bipartisan support in in uh, Congress for for uh, support for Ukraine, military support for Ukraine. 
Uh, it was there also during Trump administration, actually. Trump got in, uh, in trouble on the first impeachment uh, on the issue of supply and weapons to Ukraine. He, he, he tried to get a bribe for what he was doing, for political bribe from Zelensky, but he couldn't stop the decision of the Congress. So the Congress and generally the American people love is Ukraine, but we have this very dysfunctional system at this point where the, 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 uh, it's, it's, it's a minority role to a degree. And this is, uh, this is not good for Ukraine, but it it's, it's, uh, spells nothing, nothing good for, for the U.S., both in terms of the international, uh, U.S. international politics uh, or, or domestic. So we, 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 we are in trouble, and Ukraine is just on, on the receiving end of that. Okay. Once again, uh, Serhii, thank you for joining us. This was Serhii Plohi, author of The Russo-Ukrainian War, The Return of History. Thank you again for coming on. We really appreciate your time. Well, thank you very much. Thank you for, the, for your questions. Thank you for, for the discussion. Thanks so much. Belaboring the Point with Kate Riga is a TPM podcast. The show is hosted by me, reporter Kate Riga. The show is produced by the excellent Jackie Wilhelm. Thanks to our good friend, Why Not Jansveld, for our podcast theme song. And thanks to our TPM members who make this possible. Rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts and subscribe wherever you listen.